Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. Our guest is Samuel Moy. He is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. His research interests are in modern European intellectual history with special interest in France and Germany, political and legal thought, historical and critical theory, and Jewish studies. He has written a book titled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. I'm joined by 12 of my Harvard classmates. Okay, George Allen. Uh, hi, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a semi-retired lawyer. I spent 20 years in the Pacific uh, litigating on behalf of island landowners and governments uh, against the United States government uh, with regard to the impacts of the first nuclear testing and then military basing. Nick. Nick Bancroft, outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass, uh, class of 63 at Harvard, released most of these guys. Uh, Peace Corps for a couple of years, uh, manufacturing and then trusts and investments and all that sort of stuff in Boston. And I am just out of our 55th business school reunion. And yesterday there was a uh, fascinating uh, presentation uh, about the negotiations between Chamberlain and Hitler, uh, hmm. dissected and analyzed in a, a business school fashion. Uh, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, anyway. Okay, great. Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe lived just south of San Francisco in San Mateo, had a somewhat checkered career, but uh, the last 20 years, my wife and I have been running a firm uh, consulting with nonprofits on fundraising, strategic planning, and board governance, and executive search. Ezra. Uh, it's nice to meet you, Professor. Uh, <laughs> nice to meet you. I've met you before. I, 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 I hung out with these guys for, for four years at Harvard. And then, then after training in medicine and psychiatry, came here for the last 40 years. But I am still spectacularly poor. I don't know what I've done wrong. <laughs> All right, Mr. Lesavoy. Yeah, I'm uh, Pete the Lesavoy. I, I live up in the tip of New Hampshire, pretty much where Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and, and Canada all join together. I've, I'm a writer and editor and, and have been in the book book business, writing business one way or another. <clears throat> uh, I'm looking forward to the talk today. Uh, the thought that reminded me of the old saying uh, that what makes a good soldier is a lack of imagination. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Mason. Uh, I'm calling from uh, Maine which as you know, is surrounded on three sides by hostile uh, Canadians. I, I just returned from a week in Cuba, uh, which is a really bleak uh, demonstration of what a couple of ideologues and a bunch of guns 
can do to millions of people over multiple years. Okay. The place is tragic. Wow, wow. Doug. Uh, I'm Doug Shapiro living in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a retired physician, uh, also a retired uh, academician studying uh, animal behavioral ecology, and also a retired uh, pharmaceutical physician. Okay, John. Hi, uh, John Woodford. Uh, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I've been in uh, editing and writing and starting in Chicago and New York, New Haven, and Ann Arbor, but mainly in Ann Arbor here at the university where I put out a publication for about 20 years or so for the university. Marcy. I'm in New York City, still working to counter disinformation and the rewriting of history especially about the battle to reallocate billions of dollars from the Westway Highway and Hudson River Development Project to mass transit. Okay. David Othmer. David Othmer from Philadelphia. Nick, you and I are at the business school together. I didn't realize that. Uh, it's interesting. When we were at the business school, there were a total of 1,400 students in the MBA program. And that they were 1,400 white males, 1,399 of which were clean shaven. I, I can assure you that the business school looks very, very different now than it did then. And Nick, I was the one who was not clean shaven. So if <laughs> one poor soul wandering around with a beard, that was me. Oh, uh, boy. Great. Jeffrey, Jeff. I'm Jeff Fox, uh, long time teacher of sociology, now a writer, mainly of fiction. I'm living in Spain. Okay, Hamp. Hampton Howell, I, li I live in Nashville. And uh, like Marcy, I'm still working and I'm trying to counter dysfunction rather than disinformation. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, Professor uh, Samuel Moy, thank you for joining us and welcome. Well, thanks. Thanks for the invitation, Kent, and, and thanks to all of you for taking your time. Um, I'd love to hear what you want to talk about, so I'll say 10 minutes of things about this recent book I've done uh, that is about the attempt to make American war more humane and to place that you know event in history. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'd love to just interact with you about war or whatever you like. Um, so... You know, I was struck when I heard Barack Obama give his major speeches on the war on terror, first when he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, and then four years later when he explained uh, that he had turned to armed drones and what we call targeted killings through other means to counter terrorism. And what struck me is that in both of those speeches, he said, the saving grace of this war we're fighting without end is that it's going to be fought humanely. And I was struck by that. Uh, and I was struck by the ancestors he claimed. Um, so, you know, often he, said he was a a you know follower of martin luther king jr and your member at second inaugural he used martin luther king's bible uh, but in his nobel peace prizes address he said you know king won the 1964 prize 
but I can't be like him in this case because he was a peace activist, especially in the end of Vietnam. Uh, whereas I'm in charge of the greatest armed superpower ever created. Uh, and I have to fight wars, but he, he, he name checked, he shouted out to the first Nobel Peace Prize winner from 1901, who was a Swiss gentleman named Henri Dunant. And his claim to fame had been the idea that we should use international law to make war less brutal. And Obama said, I want to be like him. I want to bring this dream of having humane war down to earth for the American fight, you know, indefinitely into the future. So I looked into like, had ever, had presidents ever, you know, affiliated with this tradition where, what was this whole idea anyway of making, you know, what seems like a brutal thing, war, less brutal. Uh, and when, when, if ever, has American war actually become more humane? And so I'll tell you my basic answers. Um, now, the idea of restraining war, having rules about how you can conduct it, are very old and you know seem like you can find them in every different culture they're in the bible and deuteronomy but what we're talking about is rules that are supposed to reduce suffering whether of the soldiers themselves involved in war or uh or civilians non-combatants and those seem much newer and uh, Dunant, that first Nobel Prize winner, had said, what we should do is make sure that soldiers don't bleed out on the battlefield, and we should collect the dead if armies aren't doing it. And, he, and, and that's, uh, that idea matured into the red, what we now have as the Red Cross. Um, and in 1863, Dunant staged a conference in Geneva where it was from, where all the European states came together and agreed that private citizens could, you know, go on to the battlefield and as neutrals and, you know, minister to those who had been wounded and collect the dead. And that was the kind of foot in the door of this, you know, now very big project of trying to make war humane. I don't think Americans were deeply involved in it for a long time. They weren't at that conference in the 1860s. Um, they were fighting a very brutal war at that time. Uh, and uh, it, you know, we could talk about this, but in some of the wars that Americans fought, uh, uh, there was a lot of brutality. I focus in my book on Pacific Wars. Um, first, the, the, in the Philippines around the turn of the 20th century, and then against Japan and in Korea and in Vietnam. I think something big happened after that. Um, and the, most of the book is about how at, at some point after uh, Vietnam, there was a lot of interest in some circles in making war humane. And that just hadn't really happened um, before. And uh, this was long before September 11th, 2001. 
I, I look at a few different groups. One is is the humanitarians. You know, there had been these Swiss and European humanitarians uh, trying to make war humane, passing new laws, creating other Geneva conventions in kind of the tradition of Dunant's first treaty. Uh, the most recent of those is from 1949. But there weren't a lot of Americans involved in that activism. You'll remember that in the Vietnam era, there were a lot of anti-war activists, but that tradition died after Vietnam by and large. Uh, and we began to see some new activists who were committed to making war humane, including when it's fought by the American government. So as an example, take the group Human Rights Watch which emerged in the 1970s. And in the 1980s, it committed to never taking sides in war, but it would look closely at how wars are fought. Uh, and it would report to the public on infractions when you know, states, including the United States, you know, broke the law. Then take the military. So the military, I think, was shamed by the My Lai massacre and its revelation. Uh, and, you know, both out of principle, but also because they hated the public relations disaster of My Lai, military um, folks, including lawyers in the military, began to say, we should fight according to the rules more than we have. And to me, like a big turning point symbolically would be the first Gulf War after the end of the Cold War, uh, when you have the first international war that Human Rights Watch monitors for violations of the laws of war, and the first war, the same war, in which military lawyers begin to help pick targets to make sure that there's not illegality or not too much illegality. Now, it's true that after 9-11, things got rowdy and Obama's predecessor, George W. Bush, disregarded this emerging culture, which I think is already pretty strong by 9-11. And so for a few years, you got a lot of debate over whether to follow rules, like rules prohibiting torture. Uh, but the, the humanizers won that debate. Uh, and George Bush changed his mind. His lawyers accepted the rules. Uh, and Obama uh, embraced them with a vengeance once he took power. Now, part of the reason was the kind of corresponding event to me lie in our time, the, the Abu Ghraib revelations in March 2004. But I want you to note how different the aftermath was of those two events. Actually, you know, Seymour Hirsch, the reporter, was involved in both of those episodes. And you know, photography was involved in both of those episodes. And I think the fact that these things were, were shown visually to millions of Americans mattered a ton. But consider the aftermath. So there's a big anti-war movement in Vietnam. And when 
Americans realize that there's at least one really big episode of atrocity in Vietnam, it adds fuel to the fire of this anti-war movement and the war ends. Well, something very different happens after Abu Ghraib. And it's this, the, the bug of brutality is removed by Obama from a war that is placed on a firmer footing for the long run. So it's like the opposite uh, effect. Atrocity uh, becomes very vivid to Americans, but not with the outcome of stopping uh, the war on terror. In a way, it rebooted the war on terror. So the point of my book is, you know, not to say anything radical, but to just ask, what do we, what do we think in the end about this idea of making slavery a, a, a war more humane? And I think it's, it's a good thing. Obviously, it's better to have a humane war if we can get it uh, for the sake of combatants and especially civilians. Uh, if the alternative is brutal war. But I also try to argue that there's a kind of risk in making warfare more humane, which is that we'll focus on what the fighting's like, not whether it's happening. Uh, and you know, note that the biggest debates Americans have had about war lately were about conduct, the torture debate after Abu Ghraib, or whether Obama's targeted killings were you know, leaving too many civilians uh, dead. Uh, and, you know, I, in the book, I go back to the very beginning. Dunant had this great adversary uh, in the 1860s. It was Leo Tolstoy. And I'll just close with his ideas because I'm trying to revive them in a way. Tolstoy in War and Peace and in his later career says, don't make war more humane because it's risky and it could entrench war. And he actually kind of gives an analogy to something that, you know, he's been involved in, which is anti-slavery and anti-serfdom activism. And he says, look back at what like do-gooders and lawyers were doing before uh, the abolitionist cause gained ground. Well, they mainly proposed to make chattel slavery less brutal. They didn't challenge the practice. Uh, they said, could you at least you know, have some constraint in the, what you do to and with your slaves? And Tolstoy says, what if that was a mistake? What if it actually gave slavery a second lease on life? And actually historians have said it did. Um, this was known as amelioration. And again, most of the do-gooders between the later 18th and mid 19th century uh, did work not on challenging slave owners' right to hold other humans as property, but on on saying you can't be as cruel to your slaves as you were before. So let's note just that war is different. You might think that, you know, some wars are good. You might think that even if they aren't, we can't end war just by, you know, mobilizing against it. But 
I want to suggest that maybe some wars aren't good. Maybe some wars weren't worth fighting. Uh, maybe they even made the world worse. And, and so what I'm, I'm curious about is whether the, the focus of our debates when it comes to American war on whether they're too brutal, you know, should, be, should not be the only focus. Maybe we ought to ask more whether to have the war at all uh, more often than we've done since the Vietnam era. So I'll stop and, and, and really, you know, this is highly political, obviously. So, you know, let's have any, any kind of debate you want or conversation. John, you're up. Woodford. Well, I, I'd have to say that I find the use of the terminology of humane war, uh, the slippery term, I think there, war could be human, but I think humane war is an oxymoron as far as I'm right. see. It's a, and of course, uh, many generals and other people who've been in the wars point that out, that yep. war is brutal, war is hell, war is this and that. So I think that there cannot be really Good. Uh, humane war. There can be war with regulations to try to keep the brutality, the, the slaughter, the, the destruction in, in some kind of order. But it seems to me that the premise would have to be that we have to accept that it's a, an inhumane, anti-humane activity uh, in its nature. I love that point, and it's clearly right. Um, but maybe there's a proviso. So, you know, um, it, it seems fair to say that you can't make brutality what's in its essence about injury and killing more humane. Um, and so humane war would be, you know, offensive at, or at least oxymoronic. And I think that's right. However, you can, as it turns out, make war more humane. And actually the body of law my book's about was rebranded in the 1960s and 70s after Vietnam as international humanitarian law. That's what it's called. So in a way, I'm, I'm just taking the terminology of those who support this endeavor, not of making war humane, you know, perfectly, but of making it more humane. Well, we and, have to question the terminology, I think, all the time. Okay. Because, I totally because, agree with you. Because we know there's a lot of PR uh, activity now involved with selling a yeah. war to the public. I agree. By many, uh, and having NGOs that sometimes uh, obscure uh certain conflicts yep. to the benefit of certain parties so it's a complex thing i, yeah. I agree yeah. however like what if we also have to acknowledge that um when they try states and militaries can make their wars less brutal mm -hmm. uh and and i think that certain states have including mm -hmm. ours so you know you would much rather be on the receiving end of the war on terror than on the receiving end of the Vietnam War, or especially the Korean War, let alone earlier, earlier forms of, of warfare. And so we, we don't know what we're dealing with, whether to attack or defend it until we can see that there's a continuum. Wars cannot be brutal or humane, but they can be more or less brutal or more or less humane. And we, we really need to begin comparing them. Yeah, absolutely. The purpose, the purposes and causes and purposes of the war have to be brought in. 
Right. Absolutely. Well, I'm, that's my argument, you yeah. know, that, that we should focus less on the how of the fighting and more on the why mm -hmm. and whether. Yeah. Bill. Yeah, I'm, I'm the only professional military officer here, I believe. Okay. <laughs> I think I am. And, uh, you know, I'm, it's some years since I retired from the Navy. But um, to me, there's, there's several, uh, a few principles here that we ought to, that I think have been raised already. First of all, we shouldn't engage in war unless we have to. And why do we have to engage in war? Uh, I, I subscribe to the, to the principles of the just war that have been around since early, well, very early times, you know, don't, Sometimes it's necessary to use military force to protect the nation or the community of nations against terrible evil, terrible damage that is sure, lasting, and certain. And otherwise, you don't do it. And if you do do it, it should be purely defensive, only to end that evil. And the means used, and this is where the human humanity comes in, the means used should not be disproportional. They should, be, they should not cause greater evils than the evils the war is meant to stop. And of course, with weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons particularly, that's a really difficult challenge. I mean, fortunately, since World War II, nobody has actually used nuclear weapons in combat. And there's been a you know, deterrence of doing that based on the idea of mutual assured destruction. When Reagan proposed his Star Wars scheme, to me, that was terrible. I thought that was just terrible because suddenly it would make nuclear war thinkable. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine that. I, I realized that the only way that his defensive scheme would work would be as a supplement to a first strike. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's very difficult. Uh, and, you know, you look at the Russia-Ukraine thing today, and certainly I'll go back to the U.S. in a minute, but Russia had in my mind, no valid basis for invading Ukraine. They thought they were going to achieve a quick and easy victory, and they obviously didn't. And instead of stopping, they continue, and their war is horribly brutal, just obliterating cities with continuous bombardment. It's, it's uh, I mean, we, I must say we did that with our allies in World War II. So can we criticize the Russians too much? But they're not engaged in a, in my mind, in a fight for their own survival, the Russians are not, whereas we were in World War II. Um, Vietnam, at the time that I was in the Navy, Vietnam got going, and I at first thought it was justified. I no longer think the Vietnam War was a justified war at all. And regarding the war on terror, when Bush proclaimed the war on terror, I thought that was absurd. How do you have a war on terror? The only... You don't engage in war for this. It has to be defensive, certainly. You have to have serious prospect of success before you engage in war. There's no prospect of success in a war on terror because it's an undefinable enemy. There's no definable enemy. There's no way to defeat terrorism. So the war on terror, in my mind, is an absurdity to begin with. And even though we may try to conduct it humanely, it's an absurd thing to begin with. And that's in Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, you know, just terrible. I, I guess I'd like, <clears throat> I have two, I, two questions, but I'll, I'll try just one. 
And uh, I followed Andrew Basevich a bit. And uh, uh, he really addresses the issue of who is going to lead the nation into war, who is going to influence the body politic to make the decision, uh, who is going to be the person to listen to the body politic, and where does the body politic get its information to make its own decisions. We are an island with, with two moats, each 3,000 miles across, uh, isolating us from the rest of the world. And, uh, and why should a farmer in Kansas be uh, au courant with any of the arguments <clears throat> about taking military action anywhere in the world? And yet, unless they are up to date, they uh, will not uh, have the ability to make good recommendations to the leaders. And so, um, in, in, uh, in the Gulf War time, there was a term called the culpable innocence. And uh, it, it still is sort of a, a puzzle what that really means. But unless um, the innocents have some connection with the impending war, uh, they won't have good ideas. So back to Basevich, he believes that an all-volunteer uh, armed force um, is a mistake because there should be some sort of universal service, he would, I think, argue, uh, because there should be some skin in the game with every family in the United States. And um, the way to have them take a stand and consider what's happening will be to protect their children, uh, make the decisions um, <clears throat> whether to go to war or not. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so, so can I... Can, can I respond to the last oh, two? Yes, yes, okay, yes. so I mean, Bill said a number of things that are just really important in the book. I, I think, you know, it's really important to come when you're comparing cases to note how much change there's been. You know, America in World War II or, or even Korea and Vietnam, it wasn't all that clear that you couldn't bomb civilians. You know, the big quantum leap in that regard is in, in some updates to international law in the 1970s. And, uh, you know, Russia's fighting in a completely different legal situation where it's very clear that you can't, you know, directly target civilians. And it's also clear since the 70s that you can't kill excessive numbers of civilians collaterally, i.e. aiming at military targets and killing them kind of along, along the way. And so, um, I, I, I think that it's really important to kind of get back to what our ancestors thought about what was allowed in war and what was justifiable. Also really important on that to note that there's, there's not just the law I've been talking about and that you've invoked, but this whole other body of law, because there's not just just war theory like you and I sitting around doing philosophy. There's also a United Nations Charter, which is precisely a law about when states can go to war. It includes the self-defense 
exception that you invoked. Domestically, there's the Constitution and there's, you know, the very controversial War Powers Resolution. And, you know, my thesis would be we stop talking about that law in order to focus on this other body of law, which is supposedly humanitarian and meant to control how war is fought. So I think we need some rebalancing. So we're not just left with like debates in the New York Times about what's just, but with what's legal. What, when can you go to war? Because Americans basically go when they want, don't think that they have international constraints on, on their autonomy in initiating and continuing wars. Now, Nick, uh, you know, I know Andy, I'm in the Quincy Institute that he founded and he, he wrote an endorsement for this book and um, we're very much on the same page. He's, he's taking a much broader view because if we're interested in like the justice of wars, why they happen, notwithstanding their occasional injustice, you have a huge range of factors uh, and I'm just looking at a little one because I didn't think anyone had done so, this new consciousness of atrocity and brutality and the desire to have less brutal war. Um, and so I'm giving it some love, you know, trying to look at it narrowly. But of course, you know, the real concern is, you know, everything else too. I have a section in the book about the debates at the end of Vietnam about you know, shifting from conscription to an all-volunteer force. And it, they're extremely interesting because there's disagreement at the time which, one, which move will lead to fewer unjustifiable wars. Uh, and there's good faith arguments actually on both sides. Um, and I personally would agree with Andy that we everyone should have skin in the game. But here's the thing. Obama's genius was to pivot away from a form of war that required lots of troops, whether conscripted or volunteer. You know, that's symbolized by the armed drone, which requires a pilot. And soon we'll have so-called autonomous weapon system, which just require a programmer and no further human control. But also note that since Obama, we've had a massive use also by Donald Trump of special forces, uh, which are small teams of men who are precisely volunteers to be in the Navy SEALs and so forth. And so I doubt now that, that uh, imposing conscription is going to make a big difference. It would if we have a big war that requires heavy footprint intervention. But the whole point of the war on terror from Obama's point of view was that we could shift war to a light and no footprint form mm -hmm. and a humane form. And so that's what my book's about. That's, thank you. Yeah. Interesting. May I, I've been- yeah, Jeff, go ahead. Uh, well, I come to this fr fresh from, I've been reading Svetlana Alexeyevich's terribly depressing account, uh, Boys in Zinc, about an utterly useless war that the, the, even before the, 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 it was the Russian Federation, when it was still the Soviet Union, they, rec they recognized that it had been useless. Uh, and the, 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 I mean, the horrors are just, you know, they, they leave you shaken. But I think one of the things that is contributing tremendously to brutality in the wars, uh, now in Ukraine, then in, then in Afghanistan, 
in, in the US intervention in Afghanistan also, and also in Vietnam, is the uh, use of public media to, to, to maintain public support for your war effort. Well, how, you need to keep telling people you're winning. Well, how do you know you're winning? Well, you have to keep score somehow. Well, we destroyed more buildings. Or we, we killed more people than they did. You know, and so that, <laughs> and it doesn't matter who the people are you killed, just it's the numbers. It's like, it's like, a, like a score sheet for a game. So I, I think that's I think that's uh, one thing that uh, I mean, th this type of phenomenon existed even in the U.S. Civil War with the, with the you know the yellow press, but uh, but it, it is it's really much exaggerated now. We all know and we can even see the results of the destruction. And of course, the way it's the way it's portrayed in Russia and the way it's portrayed on, on, on news media in the United States is quite different, even though it's the same destruction. So anyway, I think <laughs> I think that's contributing to a lot of the mm -hmm. the uh, brutality. You know, just quickly, you're making a fundamental point. We, I don't think we should, you know, collapse the difference between a state-run media and the so-called free press that we have. But at the same time, we should note that there are times in which the 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 free press can converge around war. I mean, many people now think that the Iraq war was a mistake, but it was almost unanimously supported by mainstream media and with very little kind of, you know, criticisms or doubt. So I think it would be nice if, if prospectively we could say there are, there are, you know, periods of war fervor and we, we look back on those with regret and wish we could have you know, saved ourselves from them, but then we just do it again. So how do we, that, that's partly about the audience, you know, sure. can't just blame the media because they're, they're, they're in business, uh, you know, not just for the public interest, but to make a lot of money and we're their customers. And so they're, they're, you're raising a big question about how we could have a better public sphere and debate these things more rationally. Hmm. Ezra. Prof, I want to I want to own up quickly to the fact that I, I spent the last 40, 45 years in, in psychiatry, and so so I I take a different stance. Um, but what I'm concerned about, you haven't said anything about the prestige of war, and the role the role that that plays in in civilian life. I mean, we love it, we love it. It's a it's a profession well established, historically honored, in every European country I have ever been to. Um, the, the second thing I want you to comment on quickly is you, you're, you're thinking about war in this classic inter-nation exchange. Yeah. But I, as a psychiatrist, I, I, I sort of don't worry about that much until we can get under control the notion of violence as we see it in the civil domestic context. Right. And I see, I see no proof that we have learned to master that, and that we have learned to dominate it, that we've learned to limit it, you know, to a couple of states. Uh, and, and the recent issues, I've written a column recently and mailed it off to my yeah. editor. I mean, the, the, the way we've handled the Texas stuff is, is madness. And, I, and the responses of the responsible politicians, many of whom 
uh, Harvard and Yale educated and so on. I mean, the nonsense they talk about what's going on with how we have this propensity to violence and are willing to carry it out in traditionally psychologically safe spaces like mm. a school. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, that, that, why, why talk about war in the context of these international exchanges when we don't know how to, to keep a safe space um, safe and, and without aggravating it by our interventions or non-interventions. And when I hear friends of mine saying, I mean, I like going to church on Sundays and sitting down and listening to an organ play and so on. I mean, it makes me calm and, and it makes me feel fantastic. And then a guy comes along and says, well, one way to, one way to protect the church is to designate people who are going to carry guns inside the church. I'm not talking about outside, yeah. inside the church. I mean, yeah. I, I've never heard anything like that issued by a human being who thinks about what that suggests. Wow. How, how, how can we, why, why talk about internation exchanges when you've got people at home who want to destroy the, the two safe spaces that I've been familiar with? And there's a third I didn't mention, which is the hospital. So they want guns in the hospital. They want guns in schools. They want guns in church. The last thing I would say is, um, well, I guess this bleeds into the other notion that I would call a study of the domestic civil context. Uh, and, 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 and we have not been able to be nonviolent. I mean, violence is not just the exchange of weapons, right, and bullets. It's, it's also psychologically what we do to each other. And a classic example for us in psychiatry is Guantanamo. I, I, I am, and for the lawyers on hearing my voice, it, it may, I, I'm, just, I'm just stunned that, that people can conduct exchanges in Guantanamo with this such incredible disrespect for the other. And so, so th th this group has heard me talk about othering and treating the other. And, and that's at the heart of the way in which people talk about the exchanges in war. I mean, you, regardless of what you say, everybody knows Putin's got strong feelings about what the United States and the other European countries did to him because they othered him in preceding agreements that they had, right? I mean, that's what it was all about. The exchange around Cuba was, the, so, so he can't do that in Cuba, but we can do it in countries right next to him. I mean, I'm not a political science guy, neither am I a military professional. But I know that if I were in charge, I would, I would want to respond to that kind of treatment. I can't bring a, I can't install anything in Cuba, but you can come and install stuff next door after you've given us a promise that, that they, they, they won't be induced into becoming part of your access of influence and power. I mean, this comes back to the psychiatric part of it. So, so leaders in countries are going to do things and feel have psychological reactions to stuff, even even though you're trying to keep us from from war. But I don't want to go on talking. I want to hear what you say to my, <laughs> my amateur responses. No, I mean not everything you said. I, everyone will agree. It's quite insightful and 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 on point. I mean, on on the first thing, I just would, you know say first it's a it's a furthest thing from my intent to to criticize soldiers or say that they're not honorable people in many cases and you know 
I, I think we should actually acknowledge that w war is, is hell for them first and foremost. And, you know, a lot of the concern about not having wars was always, you know, from women who saw their, you know, sons, husbands, and, 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 and brothers die. And then from people who saw tens of millions of soldiers die in the world war. Um, and so soldiers ha are the ones, as you know, Bill pointed out, who have a skin in the game in this, not just, you know, those of us who aren't serving. Um, but, you know, the, the main response I have is that, you know, it's interesting what you say about Europe, because, you know, countries can have more or less honor and more or less, you know, that they accord to soldiers and more or less militarism. You know, there's a, a famous book about post-World War II Europe entitled, Where Have All the Soldiers Gone?, which is about how the military got kind of decentered from what it means to have a civilized state. And, you know, now Europeans are, 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 are definitely, you know, buying into the, you know, the, 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 the need to have soldiers to face down you know, an, a, a belligerent Russia. But from much of post-war history, you know, especially West Germany, was, you know, um, tr trending pacifist and, you know, prohibited from the, the you know, from, from placing the military at the center of, 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 their, of their culture. Um, and so, you know, the, what that means is that we should always have an open debate about, how, you know, how much the military as such should be honored you know, how much of our budget should go towards it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, your second point is, is was absolutely great. And I'll just let that stand. I mean, I, I think that's, that's really getting at, at the heart of things. I want to point out our classmate, Jonathan Shea is a psychiatrist, Jonathan Shea. He's uh, wrote about the damage that war was uh, caused in the Greek wars. So it's nothing new, the Greek uh, classic wars in Homer. And uh, when he was dealing with Vietnam veteran patients, he connected the, uh, you know, the mental ills and other damage that many of them suffered to the, the uh, Homeric yeah? wars. Yeah, no, that, that's oh, a really oh, important book. Yeah, Jonathan, he's our classmate. Also, okay, I want to point out that Andersonville was in the United States. And so it's not just that they do it in Cuba. We had brutal uh, practices, not, you know, it's not just we, we do abroad. It's done, of course. done by, let's say, you know, white people, to white people. There's nothing that Europe, the Europeans had the 30 years war, the 100 years war. This war I mean, I give a war. lot of attention to, you know, yeah. war wars against native peoples on, on our that continent, too. which, yeah. you know, are pretty right. horrendous without limits. Right. right. Hamp. Could I get into this? Yes. Uh, let, me, let, let, let me go with Hamp first, he, and then you come. Thank you. Uh, George. Uh, Hamp, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed, Sam, that you were born in 1972, and we were all shaped by uh, uh, Harvard and Boston in, uh, from 63 to 67. Yep. What, what hopeful responses to war do you see in uh, uh, your uh, cohort? Okay, well, I don't see a lot in mine. You know, I'm a child of the 90s when we idealized the use of force by America to make the world a better place. And my trouble is that, 
you know, having backed it, you know, for example, I worked in the White House during the Kosovo bombings in 1999. Mm. I now think, you know, we we idealized it too much. And the consequences of most American wars have set America back and not just the world. Um, and that's true when you look at, you know, the percentage of veterans who voted for Donald Trump and so forth. But I look at the younger people because I'm 50 and see a new groundswell of what you all experienced after the escalation of the Vietnam War, you know, took a little while, 65, 66, 67. But ultimately, there was a generational pushback to the Cold War, Cold War violence. And we haven't really returned to that level of activism and consciousness lately. But I look to the kids and, you know, they seem uh, to be trending in the direction that you headed uh, for a time. A lot of the pushback had to do with the draft. Correct. Which, which is also what Putin is facing. Is, Correct. He's, he's going to have to <laughs> have to forcibly recruit people. He, he's going to have a problem at home. Right. Uh, George Allen, go ahead. Okay. Uh, for openers, uh, I started litigating these issues in 1975 when I filed the uh, bikini uh, nuclear uh, testing impact case in the federal court in Honolulu. Mm. And I, uh, I can't recall a time since then that I have not had somebody in the Justice Department on the other side of something I was doing. Uh, I, I think a lot about avoidance. My dad was a a uh, naval officer in the Pacific in World War II, but he was a pacifist who grew up in a, a Quaker household. Mm. Uh, uh, so you, you, you get into Augustine's notion of the just war, which uh, Obama uh, spoke about at uh, Oslo. I'm also sure Obama did not want to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He treated a lot of it ceremonially. Contempt. He flew all the maids. Yeah, that's right. He asked if he had to show up. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm sure. Uh, uh, whomever told him he was invited, his reaction must have been, "Jesus H. Christ, do I have to yep. do that yep. for any way out?" Right. I think that's right. Uh, so, uh, but uh, uh, I really do believe in looking a lot at avoidance. How do you avoid it starting in the first place? Uh, and uh, something that comes from regulatory law in the United States, which is the bright line theory. Uh, how many wars are blundered into or are the consequence of prior uh, treaty obligations? Uh, Barbara Tuckman's great book, The Guns of August, uh, describes that, the ratcheting in of, of other players. Uh, and I think of the wisdom, uh, if you will, of Article 5 of the Washington Treaty of 1949 to say, this is purely defensive, but if you attack a NATO country, uh, you've got big trouble. So uh, I, I, I just wonder how you would feel about the idea. Where do we get to avoidance? Where do we get to something? I mean, obviously, what the Russians have done in Ukraine is just a terrible blunder. I mean, my God, they thought they could pull it off. Uh, and now it turns out they can't pull it off. Uh, but how do we get to avoidance? How do we get to a point of not starting in the first place? Um, 
you know, avoidance is a really hard thing. I think you're right that um, a lot more foresight is required of our elected representatives, but the big ticket item would be whether we think the international law should have better institutions so that it's not up to hot-headed statesmen uh, to make these horrendous mistakes. You know, Putin got to veto a Security Council resolution against him because he inherited the Soviet Union's veto. And the Korean War, you know, um, was authorized by the Security Council because the Soviet delegate was out on Long Island for the day when it met. And, you know, can we work however imperfectly on an international architecture that is about vetting claims that self-defense is involved. So it's not just up to the states because you know you can always say you need to defend yourself when actually you're engaged in mm -hmm. aggression, even naked aggression. So, you know, I have some ideas about that, but you know, it's not an easy problem to solve. Um, at the same time, I think we had a civil war and we impose control on states by moving power upwards. And there's no reason we can't think of doing that. So we're not, you know, left with a system of states, basically with a license to go to war. Mm -hmm. well, Sam, how are you on time? You pretty uh, pressed at this point? Yeah. yeah, I can only stay for a couple more minutes, unfortunately, but maybe we could take the quick, quick Peter's question since he hasn't spoken Peter, and yeah. then I can. Last question, Peter, I, on you. Yeah, yeah, quickly, I, I just wanted to get back to the, the irony that you started out with that by making war more humane, we might get, have more of it. You could comment yeah. on that. Well, that's the main idea of the book. And it's, it's again, it's not, it's hard to argue with the proposition that that might happen. Uh, if you take another domain, the death penalty, like activists who disagree that there should ever be capital punishment say, well, we can't end it anytime soon. So we're going to try to make its administration less cruel. But they own the fact they're taking a risk that it might then be harder to end than it was before once it's less outrageous and offensive to at least some people. And so my book is basically saying, you're taking a risk in doing this noble thing of trying to make war a little less brutal. And then you own the risk and you have to control and manage the risk as you know, in life in general. And so that's, that's uh, it, thanks for, Peter, for bringing me back to that kind of main idea. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on then. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for the invite, Kent. Nice to meet you all. That was Yale professor Samuel Moy. His book is titled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. Thank you.